Why are Christmas trees bad at sewing? Because they are all needles and no thread. <laughs> Hello everybody and welcome to Starting Sustainability episode 108 and this will be part two of the Deepwater Horizon series. And I know you may be asking, Kaylin, it is now December. Why are we talking about such depressing things like the Deepwater Horizon explosion and oil spill? We need to switch it over to some happy, cheerful things like Christmas because Christmas is around the corner. And I 100% agree. However, <laughs> this was only going to be one part. And then as I started doing research, I was like, oh, this is actually going to be two parts. Actually, it really should be three parts, but we're going to cream it into two parts. <laughs> and then next week we will be coming in strong with all Christmas cheer, I promise. <laughs> no more depressing things. But even though Deepwater Horizon is sad, it is still absolutely fascinating to me. And I mentioned this last episode, Channing brought it up probably back in August. He brought this up and we kept toying around with how we were going to do it, when we were going to do it, and we wanted to do research and get it done right. So it's taken us a while and <laughs> and coordinating a time to record has also taken some time to figure out and get our schedules lined up together. But in the end, it's happening now. And then I promise next week we'll hit the really fun stuff, Christmas. Speaking of Christmas, we did put up our Christmas tree this past week and we <laughs> we put up all the lights and then plugged them in to realize that some of them weren't working and it wasn't like the entire strand was dead. It was like a third of the strand was dead. Every other bulb was dead. It was a really weird thing. Anyways, Channing did attempt to fix the Christmas lights. He got out the spare light bulbs and the fuses. He switched everything out back and forth a bunch and after a really valiant effort, went and bought some new lights, <laughs> which I don't blame him because he was getting really frustrated. It was taking a long time, but hey, I do appreciate him trying to save the old lights. That's coming a really long way for this guy in terms of sustainability and trying to fix old things before you go out and buy brand new ones just because it's broke. Oh, and also I wanted to give an update for my compost situation. So <laughs> In the short term, we just stopped putting the good stuff out there. Like Ruger doesn't really want to eat banana peels or orange peels. It was the other items that he did want to eat that he was digging up and going after. Amanda listened to the episode and she gave a great suggestion. She said to dig out the cayenne pepper and let Ruger sniff it. And if he started backing away from it, that means he doesn't like it. And then take the cayenne pepper and sprinkle it around the compost pile. And that will help deter him from digging it up and eating all of the rotting food, which is a really smart idea. So thank you. Thank you very much, Amanda. And this should also help with ants and squirrels too. So if anybody's having those types of issues with their compost or garden, that is a great, natural, safe way to keep pests out of your garden. Like I said earlier, this is part two of the two-part series for Deepwater Horizon. And on the last episode, we left off with oil and gas continued to flow out of the drill pipe for 87 days. Five million barrels of oil eventually spilled, causing the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history. And when you hear that it took 87 days to plug a hole in the ground, it's easy to think, gosh, that is a really long time. How hard is it to plug a hole in the ground? Well. That's why we are covering this today. There were a lot of efforts to plug that hole. 
It's important to know that the industry had never experienced anything like Deepwater Horizon before. Mark Mazzella was the well control expert for BP. And at that moment in time, as soon as he found out Deepwater Horizon happened, that the explosion happened, the oil was leaking, he immediately called every well control expert in North America and everybody came together to figure out a solution. It was not brands competing against each other at that time. It was just teamwork. And there was no human access to the well. Remember, it's 5,000 feet below the surface of the sea. Everything had to be done via ROVs, which is remotely operated vehicles. So basically robots, (laughs) which means it was more like working on something in space than it was here on Earth. And as crazy as it sounds... The rig being on fire was actually a good thing because it helped burn up some of the oil. However, it only burned for two days and then sank. And once it sank, everything got a lot more difficult. With the rig being up on the ocean surface, it gave them a marker to find the hole. And when the rig sank, the first concern was if the rig was going to sink down on top of the well because that would make the access to the well very difficult. Fortunately, it did land somewhere else not on top of the well. However, now without the rig, it actually made it even more difficult to access the well. Admiral Thad Allen was the national incident commander in charge of the federal response. And once the rig sank, Admiral Allen contacted the Secretary of Homeland Security and they called a meeting of the national response team. And that was the same team that was set up after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. So we have a team for the well control experts and now a team for the response efforts. The 5,000 feet of piping was about one and a half feet in diameter and it was bent over six to eight feet above the well head like a straw. So right at the bottom of the ocean where the well head was, six to eight feet up, bent over, and that means the rest of the 5,000 feet of piping was then laid out. So almost a mile worth. And then of course, There were many leaks all along that 5,000 feet of pipe where oil was coming up out of it. But the main source where the oil was coming out of was the crease where the pipe was bent over right above the well. That was the main leak to take care of. There was a camera at the well and BP made the camera at the well public and it became known as the spill cam. Some of you may be familiar with watching the live footage from the oil spill cam. Normally, the blowout preventer would have capped the well. There were multiple ways within the blowout preventer to seal the well, but because all of them failed, the toughest part was now trying to figure out a new way on how to cap the well. Now I'm going to walk you through a timeline of all of the attempts to plugging the well. And this is all per a New York Times article that I found. The first thing to try was on April 25th. So remember on April 20th is when The explosion happened, the rig was on fire, and on April 22nd, two days later, it sank. So by the 25th, which is only three more days after that, they decided to try to repair the blowout preventer because the blowout preventer was still there on top of the well. It just didn't work. So officials used remotely operated submersibles, those ROVs, the robot arms that I was talking about, to try to activate the blowout preventer. There was one crucial valve that had never fully deployed, and all the efforts to activate this device were unsuccessful, unfortunately. On April 30th, they came up with the idea to use chemical dispersants. A construction vessel, which is basically a big, gigantic boat, (laughs) was placed near the source of the leak. 
and then they took coiled tubing from the boat and dropped it 5,000 feet down near the source of the leak where the oil was spewing out. And then that coiled tubing from the boat, they were pumping down chemical dispersant. And that was designed to mix with the oil while it was down at the bottom of the ocean. And that dispersant would mix with the oil and it would break it up into small tiny droplets which would reduce its buoyancy, causing it to sink. So it would stop the oil from floating up to the surface. Well, it didn't really stop it. It just helped reduce the amount that floated up to the surface. And unfortunately, the full impact of the chemical dispersants on the underwater ecology is unknown at this point. Because it's okay to use it in a small amount, but in a large amount, like what they were using was proven to be toxic to the environment. So the EPA later had to order BP to change to a less toxic chemical than what they originally used. Not to stop, to just pick a less toxic chemical. Obviously the chemical dispersants wasn't a cure-all, it was just a band-aid to help, (laughs) but it wasn't helping all that much. So then by May 2nd, they started drilling relief wells. Now this was a really good idea. It was just going to take a long time. What this means is they are basically going to have to set up two rigs. So where Deepwater Horizon was located, they would now have a rig set up one mile to the east and a second rig set up one mile to the west. They first had to build rigs. Then they had to put together 5,000 feet of piping just to hit the seabed floor, the ocean floor. And then that's where the blowout preventer was for the deep water horizon. So we're going to the seabed floor. And then where that blowout preventer from deep water horizon, they had drilled a well another 13,000 feet for a grand total of 18,000 feet of piping. So they had to set up these two rigs, get the piping down to the seabed floor, and then they still had to drill wells that would be coming in at an angle to intersect the well that Deepwater Horizon had made that was shooting oil up. Once they could intersect that well, then they could close it off. That was their plan, but that was going to take a very long time. But on May 2nd, that's when they started the process of creating the relief wells. And basically they did two wells at the same time because you only need one, but you need one of them to work. And if you came in at the wrong angle, the pressure from the Deepwater Horizon's oil well could basically skid it right off. And the other thing to remember is that the Deepwater Horizon well bore is you hit the seabed floor and then it goes down into the earth and an additional 13,000 feet into the earth. We're talking like deep, dark mud (laughs) in the ocean. That well bore is only eight inches in diameter. So now you have a different well getting drilled at an angle. So you have to make sure that you intersect with that eight inch diameter and you can't really see at all. You can't see in the water and you definitely can't see under the ground. The only way they were able to calculate all this out and make sure that they had the right measurements was by using the earth's magnetic fields. And it kind of got deep into that and it was really kind of over my head. (laughs) So, so I'm just going to skip over that part and just know that the scientists did their thing and they were able to figure out the math on that. Since drilling the relief wells was going to take a long time, then they had to come up with a way to contain the oil. So on May 7th, they came up with an idea to cover the large leak 
with a four-story steel box. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's gigantic. Four stories. And this isn't just like a regular box. Think of a Think of the top four stories of a skyscraper. So you've got four stories and then the roof angles up and almost to an antenna type point thing at the top, which ends up being a pipe. And that containment dome, which I don't know why they keep calling it a containment dome because it's not even dome shaped at all. It's definitely like a big steel box. <laughs> but that was designed as a container to go over, from my understanding, to go over that blowout preventer and because the whole thing is there on top of the wellbore. So it's going on top. And it has to be huge in order to fit over everything. The containment dome was designed to contain the oil, water, and gas. Then there was an inner pipe that came out of the top of the containment box. And that pipe would lead to the Discoverer Enterprise, which was a big gigantic drill ship. And that would collect the oil that was getting separated out from the water and the gas. And I don't think I explained it very well, but the oil is getting separated from the water and the gas within that containment dome. And then just the oil part is getting shot out of the top of that antenna type structure, which is a pipe that leads up to a great big rig of floating drill ship that would collect all the water. So that would stop the oil from dispersing into the water. The plan was for crew members to lower the containment dome with cables from the rig within the vicinity of the leak and then guide it with robotic submersibles onto the main leak at the end of the riser. Unfortunately, the cold water and gas mixture led to ice crystals forming on the inner pipe that separated out the oil. And when those ice crystals form, that means it's going to clog the pipe. So this wasn't going to work because the pressure is going to build up at the clog and basically knock the containment dome right off. Once the ice crystals were discovered, they determined this wasn't going to work and they basically just set it aside on the seabed. Nine days later, on May 16th, BP engineers successfully insert a mile-long tube into the broken riser pipe to divert some of the oil to a drill ship up on the surface. This tube is only getting a fraction of the oil, but it's better than nothing. On May 26th, Operation Top Kill and Junk Shot took place. So at this moment in time, BP's best hope of plugging the leak was to pump heavy drilling fluid down the well in Operation Top Kill. Top Kill is a procedure initiated on almost every blowout. Problem was, they were unsure of how big of a hole they had, because it blew out, <laughs> and the amount of material to pump was equivalent to what the back of an 18-wheeler truck can hold. The good news is the success rate is usually pretty good for a top kill. The problem was it had never been done in 5,000 feet of water. Vessels on the surface of the sea pumped heavy drilling mud down a pipe. That pipe connected to the choke and the kill lines. These were the already established lines in the blowout preventer. Remember when the negative pressure test came back inconclusive, so they tested these lines instead. That was the whole bladder effect argument that you learned about in the last episode. Anyways, the hope was that then mud forced into the well would weigh enough to push the oil back down. And then at the same time, they would also pump in a bunch of junk material like golf balls and rubber pieces into the lines, hoping that it would plug up in the blowout preventer. Now, filling up the well with junk wasn't going to be a permanent solution. The intent here was basically to block the flow long enough to be able to fill it with cement and seal it off. 
and unfortunately, both Operation Top Kill and Junk Shot failed. On May 31st, another attempt to cap the well was made. Engineers used submarine robots to shear the collapsed riser pipe so that a dome line cap could be placed over the blowout preventer to funnel some of the leaking oil to the tanker that was on the surface. Operators initially tried to use a diamond wire cutter to cut off the bent pipe still attached to the blowout preventer. Yeah, that means, at this point in time, that pipe that was bent over like a straw and extended for 5,000 feet, that's still there. So now they got the bright idea, maybe we should cut that off and that'll make this easier to deal with this solution, which is easy for me to say because I'm not there under the pressure, but it's kind of like, it really took you that long to think that through. But anyways, I'm not an engineer. Unfortunately, that diamond wire cutter got stuck. Man, they're just running into all sorts of problems trying to fix this thing. <laughs> so then they had to use a hydraulic shear, which is basically like a giant pair of robot scissors. And they used that to finish cutting the 21-inch pipe. But those hydraulic shears left a very jagged result. Then a new 21-inch pipe was lowered and connected to a dome that they already had on the seafloor, that containment dome. <laughs> and then the robots positioned the dome and the pipe on top of the sheared opening. Wait, they did this already, and the dome didn't work because of the ice crystals, right? Yes, but now the new pipe has a 6.5-inch internal pipe to capture the leaking oil and gas, and methane and warm seawater from the surface is pumped down the riser to insulate the smaller pipe and prevent the formation of ice crystals. So it's still the containment dome, but they have improved the internal system. They started that process on May 31st, and by June 3rd, the cap is placed over the top of the blowout preventer, and they're able to start funneling oil and gas to a surface ship. Yay! <laughs> Finally, so it took a few days because that was a lot of steps that they had to do. Unfortunately, I'm saying that word a lot this episode, <laughs> because of the really jagged cutting, the cap is not forming a tight fit and oil continues to billow out from underneath the lip of the cap because there's not a good smooth seal. So on June 16th, a second containment system begins siphoning oil and gas from the leaking well. Using equipment originally put in place to inject heavy drilling mud during the failed top kill procedure, the new system extracts oil and gas directly from the blowout preventer, passes it through a manifold on the seafloor, and pipes it up to the Q4000 surface vessel. Now this Q4000 surface vessel is not really designed to store the oil and gas. It's really just meant to burn it. Remember, because burning it is still good because it's at least getting rid of it and it's not damaging the ecosystem. Man, at this point, they're literally just throwing band-aids on top of band-aids on top of band-aids trying to get this oil capped. It's insane. Now, on July 10th, BP replaces the cap put in place on June 3rd with a new cap that fits better and therefore no leaking oil is coming out from underneath the cap. And they filled parts of the cap with antifreeze to prevent ice crystals from forming. And the cap that they have put on top, they have recreated three rams or valves similar to the ones on the well's original blowout preventer. Now this was very, very smart. On July 12th, only two days later, at this point, the top of the well is sealed 
but oil is still flowing, if that makes sense. So they put the cap on top of the big gigantic leak, but the oil pressure is still moving, as in it's not really leaking out of a big giant hole anymore, but the containment cap is working, and there are now multiple hoses and pipes connected to this containment cap, which is containing and separating out the oil. And at this point, they now have four vessels, or really large boats, attached to the well at all times, collecting this oil. So the oil is now going straight into a boat versus out into the ocean waters and wreaking havoc on the ecosystem and wildlife. So it's contained. It's not completely sealed off. No. On July 15th, they test to see if the well is intact, and they are able to close the rams in the new cap and seal off the oil. <laughs> Finally, success! <laughs> On August 3rd, Operation Static Kill takes place. The engineers were able to successfully pump mud through a valve on the blowout preventer into the existing well's metal casing pipe in a procedure similar to the failed top kill. They're able to pump mud slower and at a lower pressure because of the new cap atop of the well has stemmed the flow of oil. Mud forces the oil and gas back down into the reservoir, and cement is also pumped in to seal the well. So they basically did Operation Top Kill again. They just changed the name to Static Kill, and they changed their technique. They got smart about it, and they were able to be successful this time around. Yay, scientists learning their lessons. Now we go all the way to August 14th. Remember the relief wells that they started back on May 2nd? Yes. Even though the well is sealed on the seabed floor at 5,000 feet, there is still another 13,000 feet for a total of 18,000 feet of a hole down into the earth. BP engineers work towards executing a bottom kill. They were finally able to dig the relief well down to 18,000 feet at an angle to intercept the original well. And they ran a bunch of tests <laughs> to make sure there would not be a flow of oil and gas at the interception site. There's a whole bunch of math behind this. We're not going to get into that. Just know that they did the math and they were accurate. And once they drilled into the annular space of the original well, they were able to pump it full of cement. So now the well has been sealed off at two points. You have it at the top where the cap was, where they were able to do static kill. And now again, down at the bottom of the well bore at 18,000 feet and able to cement it in there. So now you have a double safety feature, basically. And on September 21st, the federal government finally declared the well dead after five months of failed attempts to permanently plug the well. Yay! <laughs> and I want to clarify something, because you're thinking, but you said the oil flowed for 87 days. That's not equivalent to five months. Correct. It was 87 days until they were able to contain the oil, which means that they stopped it from free flowing all over the ocean and mixing into the ocean waters and the ecosystem. So 87 days, they were able to contain the oil. And then at the five month mark, they were finally able to stop the flow of oil. That's the difference. Now, obviously BP and everybody went through a lot to problem solve this gigantic issue. And it's interesting that others, outsiders, would submit suggestions on how to plug this well. And these included placing a nuclear device down the well. And that came from a university professor. Also, 
to take a submarine, turn it on its nose, and then just fire it down the wellbore. So <laughs> I included these because they were absolutely ridiculous, but everybody was just trying to help. Now, while the engineers were closing up the well under the water, there was a lot of damage going on in the waters and on the shore. And we're going to talk about that now. Louisiana is surrounded by marsh and wetlands. The marshlands where the Mississippi River flows into the Gulf of Mexico along the coast are home to hundreds of species. And everyone was so sure that the oil was so far offshore, it was never going to come to shore. It was just going to go out to the sea and you're not going to have any negative environmental effects. But eventually, the oil approached the delicate ecosystem. And soon, one third of the Gulf of Mexico's waters were closed due to fear of contamination, which was a major concern for the seafood industry. Pelicans. The pride of Louisiana were covered in oil goo and washing up on the Louisiana beaches. They became the symbol for the disaster. The oil slick grew to cover the coastline of four states and all of them were declared a state of emergency. The National Guard installed miles of coastal defenses. There were sand-filled floating booms and these were containers that lined the water. They had a chemical on them and when the oil touched the chemical, it solidified and it was easily scooped off. But unfortunately, there was a limited supply of these booms. The existing way to pick up the oil at the time was very antiquated method. It took eight to 10 people. There was a big drum that took a few people to roll it around in the oil, the oil to grab onto it, and then other people would use squeegees to basically squeegee it off of the drum and place it into a container. And this was a lot of effort for minimal results. I came across this story where there was a local guy in a boat who had a generator and a wet vac and was able to suck up a lot of the oil with them. PJ Hahn, the director at the time of Coastal Zone Management for Plaquemines Parish, and Billy Nungesser, the lieutenant governor of Louisiana, saw him. Billy gave PJ Hahn his credit card and said, Go get every wet vac and generator you can get on the shelves at Lowe's and Home Depot. <laughs> the national news came out and showed the amount of oil that was getting picked up by these wet vacs. And then they got a letter from the president of ShopVac to cease and desist because that was not the way that it was supposed to be used. But they went ahead and used them anyways. In addition to the wetlands being at huge risk, the Louisiana culture and coastal economy were also threatened. Fishing families and canneries' livelihoods were all impacted by the economy. Louisiana is second only to Alaska in seafood production, so we are talking a major part of the culture and economy. Another method of cleanup was using Corexic. This is a chemical stored in containers in other countries. It was brought in and they began using it in the Gulf. Corexic is a dispersing agent that, when mixed with the oil, would become toxic to the environment. Now, this was determined to be safe in small amounts, but like I mentioned earlier, it was being used in unprecedented amounts during the oil spill. The EPA director at the time, Lisa Jackson, agreed to stop spraying the chemical, but it was discovered later on that BP and the Coast Guard then just took flights out of Mississippi and continued spraying at night to help sink the oil that had made it to the surface. And there was a lot of outrage about that. This was the same dispersant that I talked about earlier, used at the bottom of the ocean. They placed the tube hose down by the source of the leak to mix with the oil coming out to stop it from re reaching the surface. So they were using this dispersant both at the bottom of the ocean to get 
a good chunk of the oil and then whatever oil made it to the top, they were also using it up there. Not that there is ever a good time for an oil spill, but it honestly could not have come at a worse time. It was spring, and there are numerous small islands out there all along the coast full of birds nesting. Pelicans would fly off to go get food. And if you've ever seen a pelican, they dive into the water to get the fish. Well, the fish were trying to escape the oil and would jump up out of the water and basically land on top of the floating oil. The pelicans would see the fish and dive down to get them going through the oil, under into the water, and then popping back up completely covered in the black goo. If they weren't too oiled, then they would fly back to the nest and then cover their babies or eggs in the oil, and they would all end up dying later. Another ridiculous thing that I found out that I wanted to share with you was being within 90 feet of a boom was a felony. Remember, these booms are floating bag-like devices that stop the spread of the oil on the ocean surface. But at the same time, being covered in oil was a death sentence for these birds. So there were many people breaking the law trying to save these birds. The fish were dying from the oil. Dolphins and sharks would eat the fish and also get sick and die. There were so many pictures of boats going around trying to scoop up all of the animals. They just couldn't get them fast enough. There were so many dying, it was gut-wrenching. There was a huge loss of wildlife, but also land. It's called shadowing. The oil lands on land, similar to putting a piece of plywood out on your yard, and then you pick it up a week later. The grass underneath of it is completely brown and dead. And that's what was happening all along the coast. The oil came up into the marsh, shadowed the marsh, and killed the marsh. Once you lose the root system, then that gets broken up and you lose the land. Erosion. Oh shoot, I just realized I forgot to tell you my source. A lot of that information came from the BBC, British Broadcasting Company documentary called Deepwater Horizon. All the environmental effects that I just went into, so sorry about that. (laughs) But that documentary and I also used an article from the National Wildlife Federation called Restore the Gulf to go into all of the environmental impacts from Deepwater Horizon. So here it is 11 years later. The impacts of this disaster are still being felt in the Gulf. Serious ongoing harm to many wildlife and habitats has been documented, with some species now at greater risk of extinction than before. The first species I want to talk about is the Kemp's Ridley sea turtle. They nest exclusively on Gulf beaches. In the 1960s, the Kemp's Ridley was considered at risk of imminent extinction, and a huge collaborative conservation effort got the number of nests increasing an average of 19% annually all the way through 2009. And sadly, the steady nesting increases ended in 2010, the year the Deepwater Horizon exploded. The damage assessment estimated the oil killed as many as 20% of the female Kemp's Ridley sea turtles that nest annually, and one study found that over half of the Kemp's Ridley turtles tested from 2010 to 2012 had signs of oil exposure. Between 2010 and 2014, more than 1,000 dolphin carcasses were found in the oiled areas of the northern gulf. Research done in 2018 found that many dolphins in oiled areas remained very ill. 55% had worsening lung disease, 43% exhibited abnormal stress responses, 25% were underweight, and 19% were anemic. Many dolphins had spontaneous abortions due to the oil spill. 
successful births in the heavily oiled areas remain less than a quarter of normal levels. Dolphins born after 2010 are not as sick as those that were exposed directly to the oil, but they are not as healthy as dolphins born in unoiled areas. Scientists estimate it could take affected dolphins' populations decades to recover. One study estimated that 32% of the laughing gulls, like your seagulls, in the northern gulf died as a result of the spill. It continued to 60% reduction in laughing gull numbers from 2010 through 2013. Laughing gulls that did survive still experience impacts to their health. Deep water and coastal corals up to 68 miles from the wellhead were harmed by the oil spill, and some of the affected sites contained colonies more than 600 years old. A long-term study found that the corals were not likely to recover after the oil spill. Most of the injured coral colonies in these areas continued to decline between 2011 and 2014. The damage assessment also noted significant reductions of the fish species associated with the coral reefs. Brides whales are the only baleen whale known to reside in the Gulf. The official damage assessment estimated that 17% of the already small population died as a result of the Deepwater Horizon. The damage assessment also predicted that brides whales would likely see ongoing reproductive failure as a result of the oil exposure. As of 2020, there were just 33 individuals remaining in the Gulf. I have a very sad face right now. <laughs> this part's really depressing. I almost didn't put it in here, but I think it needs to be heard. All of this. <laughs> Oysters and the reefs they form are essential to the Gulf Coast ecosystem. One adult oyster can filter up to 50 gallons of water a day, and the reefs provide important habitat for fish, crabs, birds, and other species. However, oyster populations have been on the decline in the Gulf of Mexico for decades due to overharvesting and man-made changes to the ghost and the rivers that feed it. The oil spill only made matters worse. As many as 8.3 billion oysters were lost in the aftermath of the oil spill. And the last animal I want to talk about is the pelican. Remember the symbol of the oil spill. The official federal damage assessment estimates that somewhere between 10,000 and 19,000 brown pelicans died as a result of the oil spill. Brown pelicans declined by 43% on Queen Bess Island alone between May and June 2010, a time when the population would normally have increased. This doesn't even cover the insane amount of fish and all other sea life affected by the oil. 11 years later, there are many recovery and restoration efforts, nonstop research, habitat restoration, and breeding and spawning efforts to help grow wildlife population back to the Gulf. At the end of this huge disaster, BP was charged for capping the leaking oil well, paying for the response and for the recovery without limitation. Grand total? $680 million. Bob Calusa was indicted for three things negligently conducting a negative test, failing to contact people on shore, and not using applicable duty of care. There is no standard for negative testing, so how can you have any kind of applicable duty of care? BP pled guilty to 14 criminal charges, 11 of them were counts of seamen manslaughter. It honestly was kind of wrong for Bob Calusa to be charged with a crime when BP already pled guilty, and later he was dismissed of all of the charges. 
Another important person that you might remember was Tony Hayward. He was the CEO of BP at this time, and he kind of became the face of BP during all of this. BP set up a $20 billion fund to pay for the compensation and the cost of the cleanup. And in the end, BP paid $4.5 billion in fines and compensation. To end on a happy note, I want to share that today, the offshore drilling industry is better prepared to respond to a similar event. In 2010, some of the equipment needed to stop the flow of oil, including the capping stack that eventually accomplished that, had to be built from scratch. Now, the oil industry has that equipment standing by waiting for an emergency. Regulators require this before a company can even drill. Rather than each company developing their own response team, Big companies like BP, Shell, ExxonMobil, and Chevron subscribed to Marine Well Containment Company, MWCC, and this was created while the oil was still flowing in the Gulf back in 2010, and since then, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent on equipment and training workers. At MWCC's facility near Corpus Christi, Texas, there are five capping stacks on standby. They are about two stories tall, and the heaviest weighs as much as 40 full-sized SUVs. Five seems like a lot, but each is intended for different uses, ocean depths, pressures, and temperatures. If another spill happens, they can get offshore with a capping stack and hopefully get the well capped within a matter of a week significantly faster than Deepwater Horizon. And if crews can't stop the oil right away, MWCC has a fleet of equipment designed to capture it, put it in tankers, and bring it on shore until a relief well can be drilled to stop the flow. 11 years ago, absolutely none of this existed. All of this has been built directly in response to the Deepwater Horizon incident. It sucks that Deepwater Horizon happened, It sucks that those people on board lost their lives or were injured or even had to go through a traumatic experience. It's absolutely horrific of the detrimental effects to the environment and the ecosystems. I so badly want to be on the side of the fight that's stopping oil and just saying we never need it, don't drill ever again. But the reality is our world isn't ready for that. Not yet. It's getting there. It's getting there. I still drive a car that uses regular gasoline. I wish I could get an electric car. (laughs) They're a little bit pricey. (laughs) But since I myself can't even go throughout my daily life without using gasoline, how am I supposed to demand no more drilling oils? It is so critical to at least reduce the consumption of fossil fuels as much as possible. If you can't eliminate it because you're not set up for it, that's okay. But do the best that you can with the situation that you are in to reduce the need for it as much as possible. And it is really nice and wonderful to know that our world is heading that direction to getting away from fossil fuels and going towards other energy sources. And hopefully we'll get to a point within our lifetime that we can see where we won't ever need to drill oil ever again. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It is now time for the weekly challenge. I'm gonna open up my little container here and draw a card. It says, avoid impulse purchases becoming landfill by implementing a 24 hour wait policy when buying non-essential items. This will cut down on wasteful buying and hopefully save you some money too. 
I think that is an excellent weekly challenge given the time of year it is. It is so easy to go shopping for all these Christmas gifts and get in the shopping spending mood and start buying for yourself. (laughs) I've been there. I've done it. (laughs) I'll admit it. I have though implemented the wait policy. If there is something that I want, I have to make myself wait. Actually, I do more in 24 hours. I I make myself wait a whole week before I determine if I truly need it or if I can get by without it. You don't have to do the whole week if you don't want to. At least start with 24 hours. Make yourself sleep on it and then make the call the next day if you still truly need that item or not. Hey, Sustainer Nation, that is all for today. I know that was a heavy hitting episode full of a lot of knowledge, but now you're all very well prepared in case you end up on Jeopardy and Deepwater Horizon is one of the categories. I will see you all next week when we talk about how to be as sustainable as possible throughout the holiday season and all special occasions, actually. Until then, continue to stay sustainable, spread the word of sustainability and some Christmas cheer, and I will talk to you all next week. Have a great one. Bye.